Good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Oldwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we are going to be delving into the world of darkness. But before all that, we have some news. Well, I've been doing a few playtests recently, and I, I finally took advantage of the fact that we've got this fantastic mailing list of all the people who back us on Patreon. And you, you Paul, kindly sent out uh, an invitation for people who wanted to, to join in and, and help playtest this new scenario I'm developing. I, I probably could have ended up running a game every night of the week with the people <laughs> who responded, so, so thank you all for that. I will offer more playtests in future to try to get more of you involved. It's a rare treat, but do keep your eyes on your email inbox yes if you're interested in playing games with scott well thinking on parallel lines uh, after i took the dive look it must be a few weeks ago now uh with the skype for cthulhu group uh doing a run through of a scenario i've been working on that surprisingly given my track record with technology went relatively well Admittedly, after an hour of fucking around trying to get the bloody microphone and uh, things to work. <laughs> okay, this but, is yeah. sounding more fam- uh, more uh, familiar now, Matt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, and, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've certainly played a fair number of games which are nothing but an hour of fucking around. So. Yeah, I'm oh, not just trying to get the bloody technology to work. <laughs> yes. I mean. But, yeah, there might be a couple of things on my end coming up uh, coming up relatively shortly. So oh, OK. I, that, that might be an option when we finally got decent internet after we moved. Something you'll put out to backers to join you? Yes. Oh, OK, yeah. cool. Excellent. So if you want, the, you want the good cop, bad cop, or good cop, good GM, bad GM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just you letting the side down. It is, yeah, as yeah. usual, I'm afraid mm. so. <laughs> and one more thing that we're going to be working on very soon is the final chapter of A Poison Tree, the Trail of Cthulhu campaign that we're working on for Pale Grain Press. Yes, I mean, this has been a long time in development. We've been working on this, what, three and a half years now? Uh, like I was going to say, it's coming up, it'll be for four years come this dragon meet, I think. Yeah. It seems like... Yeah, forever. Yes. Well, it's, That's 350 it's a, years, one might yeah, say. It's quite a long time. <laughs> it's a big campaign. It's a really big campaign. I mean, each of the chapters in this book is basically a mini campaign. And that's chapter seven looks like it's going to be three times the size of any other chapter that comes before it. So. Yay! Yeah. When the book goes on sale, it's probably going to have to come with a free hand cart or something like that, just so you can move the book around. <laughs> but we'll keep you updated on progress on that and let you know when it looks like it's heading towards publication. What's it time for now, Scott? Let me guess. It's time once again for the Lovecraftian word of the... Week. And now... The Lovecraftian Word of the Week. And this week, our Word of the Week is... Monstrous. An adjective. 1. A. Shockingly hideous or frightful in appearance. B. Of or resembling a fabulous monster. 2. Exceptionally large. Enormous. 3. Extremely immoral or cruel. That's an interesting one. Four, archaic, deviating greatly from the norm in appearance or structure. Abnormal. And this is one of Lovecraft's favourite words, it seems. I mean, we've had some other words on this which he's used a lot, but I 
bloody hell, this one, between monstrous, monstrously and, and other derived forms, this turns up 195 times in this fiction. Well, that must average out, you know, several uses per story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, when I was going through my PDF of, of the complete Lovecraft and just searching for monstrous, it highlights in the, the margin on the right-hand side you know, every lo- uh, location in the text where it appears. And that whole right-hand side just went red. <laughs> huh. I mean, it's one of these words that, you know, you have certain words that have connotations or things that just instinctively spark something in your brain. Every time I see the word monster or monstrous, I always keep thinking of that bloody animated version of Beowulf with the very bad uh, voice of uh, in Beowulf just saying, I'm here to kill your monster. Oh, Ray Winston? That's him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I always have that stupid bloody soundbite going through my head. <laughs> One of the things that sort of amused me, I guess, when going through the text, looking for examples that we could read out, was the way Lovecraft used this. And because this is such a ubiquitous word in his text, I suppose I've become you know, fairly inured to it. Oh, yes. It's one of these words you barely notice anymore when reading Lovecraft. So what did he mainly use it for, then? <laughs> well, I mean, he used it in a number of contexts, but the one he kept going back to seems to be as a synonym for big. Hmm... Maybe got paid by the letter rather than paid by the word. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about this, about why he did that, and it sort of got to the, the heart. Uh, one of the things that I actually like about Lovecraft's work, which is his propensity for not understating things, that he will, I mean, you know, sometimes it does come across maybe as being a bit hackneyed, but the fact that he will use these striking, you know, attention-grabbing words for quite often fairly simple concepts. But I mean, there are a lot of synonyms for big, enormous, vast, huge, enormous... I've used enormous twice, uh, <laughs> you know, gigantic, gargantuan. There's there's lots of synonyms for that. But monstrous seems to imply a lot more than just size. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it has a degree of shock that comes with it. Uh, and it's certainly a negative yeah. connotation if something is monstrous. It's huge and scarily huge. It's, it's Yes. Yeah. Which is something that does come up a lot in Lovecraft. Mm. Uh, yeah. when, when you have large structures or large creatures or large places, they're fairly unpleasant. So should we take a look at how Lovecraft used the word monstrous in his writings? From The Dreams in the Witch House Two of the less irrelevantly moving things a rather large congeries of iridescent, prolately spheroidal bubbles, and a very much smaller polyhedron of unknown colours and rapidly shifting surface angles, seemed to take notice of him and follow him about or float ahead as he changed position among the titan prisms, labyrinths, cube-and-plane clusters, and quasi-buildings. And all the while the vague shrieking and roaring waxed louder and louder, as if approaching some monstrous climax of utterly unendurable intensity. And from the haunter of the dark. Azathoth have mercy. The lightning no longer flashes. Horrible. I can see everything with a monstrous sense that is not sight. Light is dark and dark is light. Those people on the hill guard candles and charms. They're priests. And from the festival. We went out into the moonless and tortuous network of that incredibly ancient town. 
went out as the lights in the curtained windows disappeared one by one, and the dog star leered at the throng of cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, past the creaking signs and antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and diamond-paned windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanterns made eldritch drunken constellations. And now, let's move on to our main topic, the world of darkness. Let's begin with an overview of the world of darkness. It's been around for some 26 years at the time of recording. So where did it all start? Matt, do you want to kick us off? Well, back when I was eight years old, just to rub it in some. Damn you! <laughs> in 1991, uh, the World of Darkness began as I think, Vampire the Masquerade, really. It oh, definitely, the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember that coming out. Yeah. I mean, it's The term itself has kind of grown to become something else beyond more than just vampire in the intervening time. Originally, there was, there was actually a source book called A World of Darkness, I think it's then spanned out from there that that was originally designed as a kind of supplement for Vampire. But the term has then become one to encompass all the different game lines that White Wolf Studios or the different the different thing that White Wolf has become over the years because White Wolf itself has had a bit of a bit of a history in the same in the same time it's become very different things over the years. We'll get to that. So from Vampire the Masquerade we go on to Werewolf the Apocalypse then Mage, The Ascension, then Wraith, then Changeling, Dreamer, The Hunter, and, and various games that kind of spin off, all within this world of darkness. In, in one way or another, or in different planes of it, yes. Some of the settings really don't match up as well as some of the others do. There's a definite shared realm between the big three, Vampire, Mage, and Werewolf. But then if you think about where Changeling fits in, for example, and where Demon fits in, they don't have the same degree of mesh. You, you can see okay. there's definitely... So it's hard to be playing one of those and switch into one of the other games. They're more interwoven between the big three than they are the smaller ones. Oh, that's, that's the better way of putting it. But this idea of the world of darkness, what, what is it? I mean, apart from the fact that you've got vampires and werewolves and mages and, and all these other beasties running around, what is it that typifies that as being a world of, well, darkness? Well, the way they describe it is it's effectively you're playing in the modern world, but everything's just a little bit more grimy or darker or more gothic and horrific. And all those supernatural aspects are there in a coherent way. Yeah, they're just hidden in the shadows that you never see them. They are always trying to hide from the rest of the, norm the normal world. They're worried about their own different version of an end time if they were to become known. That It's a bit like in Unknown Armies, the idea of the tiger waking up and lashing mm. out. That They're all worried that, oh shit, humanity found out there are vampires, there's going to be another, another inquisition. Or, holy crap, werewolves are out there, right? Get your pitchforks and start running around killing every dog that you find. It's, there's always the worry that because the human race is so big that it is an overwhelming force that it would crush any supernatural threat that it, um, that it perceived. Hmm. But there's also the idea which you touched upon there that even without the supernatural aspects, the what the grittiness and griminess of the everyday world is dialed up to eleven. Oh, very much so. Yes. So, well, I mean that that represents things like corruption. You know, mm -hmm. large corporations acting in really despicable manners, uh, <laughs> political shenanigans, and so on. You know, all, all, all that totally unrealistic stuff, Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, give it time. <laughs> yeah, but particularly the big business one because that's an intrinsic part of werewolf. Yeah. Then we move on a couple of years to 1993. That still seems quite a long time ago. 
and Mind's Eye Theatre brings out the the kind of LARP aspect of World of Darkness, mm-hmm. right? So well, it was an imprint of White Wolf that um, the White Wolf released a series of what they called um, Mind's Eye Theatre books, which allowed you to play the main core games that they'd released up until this point in a table uh, for tabletop audiences, that you could play them in a live action setting. And that really seemed to have captured people's imagination and become popular, the LARP aspect particularly of this. I mean, there's, there are LARP um, books for Call of Cthulhu, but they, they seem quite niche. They don't seem to have really taken off in the same way that the Mind's Eye Theatre vampire LARP has, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, to put it in perspective of how much the kind of proportion of books are from one to the other, mm. with Cthulhu, from memory, you've got Cthulhu Live 1st Edition, You've got Cthulhu Live 3rd edition, which is one book as well. 2nd Ed was split up into four or five books. So let's say yeah. let's say round it off maybe six or seven. And yeah. there, was a, there was a Delta Green one as well, wasn't that there? That was part of the 2nd yeah. Ed set. Right. Yeah. yeah. Versus, I think we're up to about 180 books somewhere in the Cthulhu range at the minute. In Sorry, the, in the World of Darkness one even. No, no, I was saying for Cthulhu. Oh, oh I no. see, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so you've got six out of roughly 180. Oh, okay. With... The original World of Darkness run, before they moved on to the new World of Darkness setting and before they released any 20th anniversary stuff, you had somewhere in the region of 566 books that were released. Wow. Of which 55 of those were Mind's Eye Theatre books. Right. So there's so a about lo- 10%. Yeah, yeah. Much larger than any other uh, live-action conversion that I'm aware of. But also, I mean, that, that highlights there was a hell of a lot of stuff published for World of Darkness. Oh, yes, as, as my bookshelves attest to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's interesting that when I think of LARPing, that you know, th- there are three main strands I think of, that there's sort of the you know, maybe more traditional side and the boffalarp side of things where you're playing D&D-type games, you know, perhaps in costume running around the countryside or caves and, and you know, hitting things with rubber swords. Mm. There's the, the more kind of Scandinavian-type thing or crossover with, with parlour larps and maybe free forms in the UK of, of kind of smaller, more intimate, intense things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the big one in my mind is this World of Darkness type thing. When we first started getting to know each other, Matt, I remember you used to fly off all over the world to these, these big LARP events, particularly in the US. Oh, yes. Yeah, in fact, that's how I met Tiff. There were lots... I think, really, its heyday was about 2004, 2005. I think that's probably where it hit the hit its peak. That after the decision was made at White Wolf to cancel what we refer to as the classic World of Darkness and move on to their new World of Darkness stuff, uh, the LARP scene lost a lot of its numbers because they were very much... They wanted to play the old world. They didn't want to play the new world stuff. And these events were actually being organised by White Wolf, were they? Yes, at the time they were, yeah. For, at least from the perspective that I saw, because I was part of the um, the White Wolf fan club, which at the time was called the Camarilla. It's gone through lots of different iterations since then and, say, fractured into various different parts. But you had conventions where there were easily a thousand-odd people would turn up to them. Yeah, that's pretty massive numbers for one game. Yeah, yeah, and it was one game that was being run. So, Matt, you just made reference there to the change that took place in 2004, where we moved from the old world of darkness to the new world of darkness. So <laughs> that was that was a new edition taking all, you know, that they, they kind of felt that that had run its sort of story arc, perhaps with the sort of meta plot that was going on, and, and they mm-hmm. brought out a new edition with new rules. Exactly that. 
they made an announcement, I think it was back in 2003, that said the next upcoming year of books that they were going to release were all going to be about winding up the metaplot. So you had Gehenna for Vampire, you had the Apocalypse for Werewolf, you had Ascension for Mage. Basically all the big things that had been saying, it's on the horizon, it's coming, in the books that they've released over the past decade, suddenly, holy shit, it's here, that's the end. And they released the books that said, right, this is the way you can close off your Chronicle. So once you had closed off your Chronicle with the old game, when you were buying the new game, were you starting again from scratch, in effect, and sort of saying, okay, well, all that stuff that we've done before, is that was a, a story, That's we've wiped that off the, the decks now. You know, it's, it's normal modern day, but there are vampires, and we're starting afresh? It, it is a very different game, but using a lot of the same tropes. So your World of Darkness, again, was modern day... The world you know, yeah. everything's just a little bit more horrific, sure. etc. Supernatural sitting in the background. But the supernatural types that you're playing, while again, they're vampires, they're werewolves, they're mages, while they are the same there, the structure of how the game is set up is very different mechanically as well as the setting. So we kind of moved back to 1991, but with a new variant of the same games. Yes, there, there very much are variations thereof. But there were a couple of key differences, though, weren't there? Like the fact that they started off by publishing this core book of rules, The World of Darkness, mm-hmm. which was the, the core mechanics that were shared by all these other games. So instead of them being you know discrete games that, that shared a, a common set of mechanics, it was like almost you know from the outset, it was sort of, this is a continuous game line just you know split up into you know, different sort of sub-games. Yeah, very much that. And, and the idea that... Um, you could play mortals in this world as well and play mm-hmm. you know perhaps more traditional horror stories and you know they released some supplements that that actually focused on that so that if you weren't playing something like a mage or a werewolf you, you could just play you know almost like a call of cthulhu game you're playing a, an ordinary person who is caught up in you know the weirdness of the world oh there are there are a lot of cthuloid or lovecraftian influences in in new world of darkness which Admittedly, if you move on again a few years, has become known as something else. It's now Chronicles of Darkness. So let's just talk about that, that moving on a few years. What happened to White Wolf and so on? Do you want to say a little bit about that? I mean, changes took place in like 2006 and 2011. Yeah, yeah the, the, pod, the very quick overview is that essentially CCP wanted to make a World of Darkness MMO. So, so CCP being? Uh, they're the company behind EVE Online. They're a, they're a Scandinavian computer games company. Um, EVE Online's still thriving pretty well, and that's pretty much where the focus of their efforts are, and it's solely EVE, I believe, that they do now. Uh, But they originally said they wanted to do a World of Darkness MMO, so they needed to buy the IP, the intellectual property, for that. So they brought out White Wolf. Um, The gaming company itself closed down, some employees moved out to Scandinavia. Everything was dedicated to just doing the MMO. They weren't interested at all in producing RPG products. Which, I mean, you can almost understand in that, you know, there's a hell of a lot more money in computer games than there is in tabletop role-playing. No, very true. Um, They they also, they didn't have an infrastructure set um, to do it. They didn't have any interest in doing it. But there was still a market for it because there were fans, like myself included at the time, that were clamouring, we want new material, we want to see the lines supported, we don't want the game to die. So a lot of the old... Uh, kind of the old guard at what was the original White Wolf, um, headed by Rich Thomas, who was one of their, uh, I think he was the creative art director uh, for a lot of of the period. He founded Onyx Path Publishing, which was then set up by license to uh, CCP to produce 
RPG books. Right. Okay. So they would gather, they would hire out freelancers, they would hire line developers, and they would do um, individual book project um, projects. Submit them up to CCP. They would say yay or nay. We we do or we do or we don't want this as part of our canon that will maybe ultimately feed into the MMO. And basically, they gave the final seal of approval because they owned the IP. And this is where. You, Mr. Matthew Sampson, come in, right? Because you've written for Onyx Path. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I've written for written for four of their books now. What have you written for, Matt? Uh, Hunters Hunted Two, Anarchs Unbound, Rights of the Blood, and Ghouls and Revenants, all for the Vampire Twentieth Anniversary line. So, just briefly, I mean, it's not so much our remit, but the MMO did did that was that successful? No, I mean, in a very right. uh, in a very late, uh, blatant full stop. So it never launched, did it? No, yeah. they, they spent millions of dollars on um, on developing it. Uh, it went through many changes of developer. Each time that someone came on, there were radical changes made to it. And by the end of it, they had something that they realised we've poured so much money into it. We still need to pour a bucket load of money into it because we haven't got far enough into it. This is now becoming financially unviable. Ditch it. Right. Okay. So CCP scrapped the idea and then uh, say focused purely on Eve Online. But Paradox Entertainment came along, actually not that uh, too long ago now, only back in 2015, came along and said, we want to, uh, we want to buy the IP because we want to start producing tabletop material. We want to produce a, a variation, not an MMO potentially, but at least computer game material because there had been previous computer games done by the original White Wolf. And we want to try and revitalise it and really bring it, up to, um, bring it back to the modern day. So Paradox are doing computer games or they're doing tabletop role-playing games? Uh, Paradox, at the moment, I believe, are computer game specialists. Right. But they're looking to branch out into all aspects of media with doing that, using the World of Darkness IP. So where does that leave Onyx Path? They're specifically looking at World of Darkness material. This is why I mentioned about how that the new World of Darkness is now called Chronicles of Darkness. Hmm. Um, they're not interested in what we've referred to as New Wad. Um, they only want to focus on the original classic games, so Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, etc. Those, not things like Vampire the Requiem, Mage the uh, Mage the Awakening, etc. Those are the Chronicles of Darkness. They have been given over purely to Onyx Path, so that is their baby to run, and they'll produce material for those games. But Onyx Path started out doing the 20th anniversary editions of the original games, though. Yes, and those, I think, will continue on with them, because what they'll refer to as like fourth edition for um, Vampire Masquerade will be dealt with by Paradox. So we're going to have two companies doing different editions of essentially the same game, of, of you know, World of Darkness-style games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the 20th anniversary lines hark more back to the original setting material, say, like with using the vampire example, that Gehenna, this kind of big end of the world, the elders rising and everything going to hell um, event is always lurking on the horizon. Whereas from the little snippets they've released so far for 4th edition Masquerade... This is for Paradox. Yeah, from Paradox, um, say that this is post-Gehenna. Okay. So it is very much two different points in the timeline. Well, let's expand our discussion a bit more now and try to drill down into what the, the enduring appeal of the World of Darkness has been. I think the main reason we chose this topic was because we've got Matt, 
on our team. <laughs> yes. Who is You just steeped... wanted to grill me. That's all you wanted to <laughs> <Yes>. do. <laughs> who, is, who is steeped in the whole White Wolf canon uh, and, and all those games. I mean, you've got shelves of them. You've um, been immersed in, as we've said, the kind of live action and the tabletop side of them for 10, 15 years. And you have also written for them as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're our authority on these things. Yeah. Yeah, I, own, I own about ninety percent of the work of the work that the whole company's put out in various different iterations. I'm only so, missing about sixty books. So, so can you encapsulate what it was that drew you to that game and that setting so strongly? I mean, you 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 like a lot of different games. You like Call of Cthulhu, but you you like you know a lot of other games as well. I know. What was it that particularly grabbed you and made you you know fly to America several times a year to go to LARPs and so on? What was it particularly grabbed you about it? I think it's just the the width of the or the the scale of the world that it created. I mean, there are source books and supplements that detail parts of the world of darkness, as I said, all over the world. That it's not just confined to like. I mean, this is probably going right to the very other end of the scale. Something mm. like Heaven and Earth, which is one of my top favourite games, but that focuses on purely one town in Kansas. That this is a whole world that's being detailed with different factions all fighting for, uh, for control of different areas. They all have their different agendas. There are different levels of reality. There's so much stuff that's so in there. So is that, is that volume of material and detail and wealth of content that, that really allowed you to get into it, that, that drew you in? I wouldn't say I mean, it allowed me to get into it because it's quite a barrier to entry. Mm, yeah. But it's discovering all that stuff as you then start playing. Because very much, I, when I started off, I didn't have this vast library that I have now. Um, I had a couple of books, and I remember coming, um, going to one game, and then someone mentioned the term La Sombra, and I went, hang on a minute, what the hell's that? I've not heard that term used before. And it was then slowly learning that, oh, there are other clans outside of what we can play? What the hell's going on here? Because conversely, Scott, you've mentioned that you were out of role-playing for a while, and when you came back to it, there was, there was a whole load of stuff here, and it put yeah. you off. Yeah, exactly. I I I stopped role playing around 1991 or so, and stopped for about ten years, and so I, I missed all of the birth and the you know the escalation of the world of darkness material. By the time I got back into role playing, I, a number of my friends were big world of darkness fans, and yeah, I, I remember thinking, oh yeah, yeah like this to try and then just you know they start mentioning all these different clans and hauling out all the you know piles of splat books and um you know talking about the way the different games connected and it suddenly felt like i'd have to do so much work to catch up with this that i found it immediately immensely off-putting you know i i didn't i didn't feel like this was this was something that I had the time or the energy to get up to speed with. You used a term there that I associate quite strongly with World of Darkness. It's not unique to them, but but splat books. Do you want yes. to just say what a splat book is? Well, do you want to define this, Matt? <laughs> because there are very compartmentalised almost like classes. I, I don't want to use the word class, but if you think of it in D&D terms, they're classes. That you can play clans in vampire or bloodlines, uh, being a more specialist well, like prestige class, uh, for want of a better term, or tribes in werewolf, or traditions, or paths. That everything is very compartmentalised. Say you're one of these, you're one of these, you're a member of this group, etc., etc., etc. There is a book for everyone, and as such, this is partly how they got up to five hundred and sixty odd different mm. publications. Um, that each one details their history, their practices, new spells, new powers, new disciplines, etc. That they are geared 
purely for stuff that this group has that other groups don't. And it strikes me that's a very good publishing model as well for White Wolf to have chosen because as a player, you know, I'm playing I don't know, a Malkavian or something and my vampire is of a particular bloodline. That's always going to be the case. There's always going to be one, one particular bloodline and in a particular clan. And as a player, I think, oh, well, I'll buy that book. I mean, would I, as a player, buy that? Yeah, generally. It's, I know a lot of people from the LARP scene that I was involved with, they would have say they just made the decision to go i want to play a torridor they would go out and buy the torridor clan book mm. and in some cases they would go out and buy both versions of it because in some cases there were revisions of the clan books they had the original version and then the revised edition of the clan book they did the same thing with the tribe books the tradition books etc and i mean so with with white wolf the impression i got and you know i i don't have many of their books so you know please correct me if i'm wrong but the impression is that unlike pretty well any other publisher that was around at the time most of what they published was player-facing material. They didn't necessarily publish much in the way of scenarios or campaigns. They did, you know, some setting material, some setting books. Um, obviously, the core books, which you know, both the players and the GMs would buy. But there was comparatively little, compared to, say, something like Call of Cthulhu, that was GM-only material. Yeah, there was a handful of campaigns that they did, or the um, least say short campaigns i wouldn't want to say the word scenario because they were there were books per adventure that they released so they were comparatively thin by standards of some rpg books you'd see today that are like telephone directories that you slam down on the desk for a campaign but they were something that well, slowly phased out that they were replaced as you said by more player facing material like the clan books and um, other splat books definitely player facing other things like magic supplements, again, very much player-facing. They had some background in there, but it was nothing that the GM or the storyteller could turn around and say, oh, no, don't read that section, you don't need to know that. Because it was a lot of setting fluff, in a sense. It's stuff that back, uh, stuff that bulked out where these powers came from and gave them a backstory in their own right, so they didn't just appear as say, oh, look, here's a new power that you've got, without any context. Going back to 1990, just before this came out, before Vampire the Masquerade came out, I can remember I was living in Yorkshire, I was in the games shop in Huddersfield, and talking to people about the forthcoming vampire book, where you get to play vampires. I mean, what was that all about? Because <laughs> up till then, I mean, vampires were the enemy. You'd, you'd go out and, you know, you'd play investigators or you'd play adventurers or whatever, and you'd be, you'd be fighting vampires, they'd be the monsters, but... We're going to play them as player characters. And that it, was a. Yeah. It kind of surprised me that it took you know so long for that to happen in role playing, because I remember reading Anne Rice's interview with Vampire back in the early eighties. Certainly, that presented this this really sort of rich world for a teenager with some kind of goth leanings. You know, this this was like crack to me. The idea then that a role playing game would allow you to play in a world like this seems, in retrospect, like a really obvious thing. Yeah, it took you know fifteen years from the time that book was published, and seventeen years from the time the first RPG came out, for someone to actually really do that. Well, I, actually, I say that there was another game, wasn't there, that came out a little while before the World of Darkness that did something similar, uh, which was called something like Nightlife. Never um, heard of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it came out about a year or two before Vampire: uh, The Masquerade, and covered quite similar ground. But it 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 was never anywhere near as popular. But vampires seem to capture the the imagination and have 
I don't know if it had a good marketing um, plan or what, but it seemed to the message seemed to to get out. I mean, I was only in touch with a, a small number of role players, I guess, at the time, but it, it seemed to to impact the whole role playing hobby very quickly. Well, I, th- I think it did a number of things right. It had an evocative name. It had some really cool artwork. That was a big deal, the artwork, to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, it had a strong premise. Like we said, not a, an, an entirely original premise, but a strong premise. I wonder how much the mechanics had to do with that. In our episode, a few episodes back, uh, episode 99, I think, on, on My Life with Master, I made an observation about the fact that the World of Darkness character sheets seem to have no numbers on them very very few yeah it's difficult perhaps to to think of you know now how how much of a change that was but i mean throughout the 1980s you know we'd gone from you know games like D and traveler and and runequest which i mean were already fairly number intensive you know your character sheets were covered in numbers um and the mechanics were perhaps relatively simple to an escalation as as the decade went on where i mean not universally i mean there were still some simple games out there but it was a fairly common design trend for th- games to try to get more realistic you know for there to be more stats which more basically crunch, meant more numbers and yeah more numbers. yeah and suddenly i guess you had this game that came out which was you know not a niche game a big game that was in shops everywhere where you know you didn't have to do mathematics in order to do it there weren't numbers on the sheet you had dots um where you were rolling uh, rolling pools of dice and then just sort of counting up successes which were generally fairly low numbers to count and for people who might have been put off by this feeling of that, you know, they, they were doing accountancy by playing crunchy games, I imagine this was a real breath of fresh air. That certainly struck me when you said it the other week, Scott, that how simple it was. It gave the illusion of being like those other games. There was quite a lot of words on there and there were a lot of different skills and characteristics and um, specialisms in, in magic and abilities and so on. So there was quite a lot of content on the sheet. But the actual mechanic, yeah, it was kind of deceptively simple. Um, you just add a, a characteristic and a skill. You might have three dots in that and two dots in that. You roll five, ten-sided dice, and you see how many of them score above seven. And that's your number of successes. That was pretty simple and didn't really involve any arithmetic. Yeah, and I think it was significant that, I mean, the games before, you know, the games I remember playing in the 80s, the majority of people I played with were very geeky people. They tended to study sciences. They were happy with mathematics. So, you know, throwing a game at them where, you know, they'd have to do multiplication or, you know, addition or whatever on the fly or add up, you know, the results of large pools of dice. I mean, hell, I remember, you know, playing Champions in the 1980s, which I loved. Uh, my friend Bill Keats in New York ran a fantastic game. Uh, Sol, Dave uh, and I and a few other friends used to play that fairly regularly. It was great fun to play, but, I mean, thinking back at it now, you know, some of the powers in there, you know, we'd roll, we'd roll big pools of dice for, you know, say, damage effects. And we'd, you know, perhaps roll 20, 30 dice sometimes and add up the results on all those dice. Uh, add them up on all of them? Yeah. I guess for you know a game like you know the World of Darkness you know Vampire the Masquerade comes along and all of a sudden it's you don't have to do that stuff anymore you don't have to mm. be the kind of person who can invest time in learning all these rules and and be happy with all these numbers and suddenly it broadens the potential player base massively rather than being an appeal I think it's when you play it it wouldn't put you off so yes. I don't think I'd, I'd 
I don't think people were flocking to it because it was simple, but I think they weren't put off by the complexity, perhaps. Yeah, but I mean, I think the thing that got them through the door was the whole, the appeal of the game to people with a, you know, a goth tendency. It seemed a, a much more attractive game to female players as well, something that the hobby was much more male-orientated, I oh, think, gosh, before yes. before Vampire and so on came along, I would say. I mean, how would you say the... Well, I guess particularly in the LARP world, Matt, how would you say that the sort of gender balance was in that? I'd say it's pretty equal, to be honest. Um, and that's there's... pretty incredible in role-playing game circles. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you think about conventions back in the 1980s, uh, it was very, very rare to see female gamers there. I know they, they weren't uh, unknown, but... Um, you know, is, there certainly wasn't anywhere near the gender balance you just talked about. And looking around at the Milton Keynes Club the other day, I figured a quick head count there's about one third female. Yeah. So we, you know, we're still fighting a bit of an uphill battle to to get the balance in there. There's also one other factor I think that comes in in their terms of appeal or accessibility for the games, is that they're all creatures or beings or classes from mythology, such as mm-hmm. your wizards, your vampires, etc. Um, but they all have a very human face. Yeah. You, can, you can relate to them more easily than you can, let's say, if you had a game about the Lovecraftian version of ghouls, not the World of Darkness version of ghouls. Um, or let's say you're playing Amigo, for example. You, those Lovecraftian monsters, you can't connect with them as much, but being some folklore, mythology and so on, they have a very human face. They're yeah. a lot more suddenly accessible, especially when they're trying to hide and being part of the real world at the same time. Yes, yes, very much so. Well, And, and also I think it very much played into the goth subculture at the time. Oh, God, you know, yeah. You're, you're playing these you know, shadowy creatures that only come out at night, wear a lot of black and so on. And, and yeah, yeah as, as someone who was a teenage goth, yeah, oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're talking about my tribe there. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture you as a teenage goth. I'm not sure which is harder, the goth or the teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cheers. Looking back, it certainly seems to me that the one that really worked was Vampire. And the rest of the games, whilst they had their, their pros and cons and they had their in own individual appeals, it seems like, you know, if they hadn't have had Vampire, would all those other ones have worked? Were they all kind of riding on the coattails of Vampire? Um, structurally, I'd say yes. In terms of the numbers, Vampire had the most books released for it at somewhere around about 120 books. Werewolf followed behind that with about 104, 105, and Mage at about 9,500 mark. So, slightly ahead in terms of it was the oldest game. So Vampire did have the, um, did have the most support for it. But, as I said, you have the structure of Vampire carries through into all the other games. You have a big faction made up of lots of little small factions fighting another big faction that has lots of small subdivisions within it. That carries through into Werewolf to a degree, where you have all the tribes fighting all the big nasties out there that are all basically not werewolves. Uh, you have Mage, where you have the technocracy versus the traditions. It carry, it's, a, it's a standard template that worked. But maybe it's just my perception, but it seems like Vampire was the, the gateway drug, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> Once you're into Vampire, that would open the door. And all these other ones were an easy sell then. You know, oh, we've played Vampire. Oh, yeah, let's give Werewolf a go. Or From my experiences, even this day and age, if I tell people, you know, what I do, what I write, I, you know, I say, you know, I write tabletop role-playing games. And most people, you know, I, 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 I tell, just look blankly at me. If I say, you know, like Dungeons & Dragons, oh, yeah, right. 
And I think there aren't many games that would have that kind of recognition like that. I mean, I think the the only other one I can think of, you know, that we could match, well, not match, but, you know, come close to Dungeons & Dragons, would probably be Vampire the Masquerade. If you were to mention the name of a role-playing game to a non-gamer, I'd say after D&D, that's the other one they're most likely to know. Yeah, because they will have come across it via lots of other media as well. I mean, there's been a plethora of fiction books that have um, helped to expand the setting and metaplot. There's been video games, there's been music CDs, there's been a TV series, there's been the works. Card games. Oh, yeah, trust me, I've spent thousands of pounds on that <laughs> bloody game, trust me. <laughs> you were talking about the strength of the appeal, Scott, and, and you know, the, the quality of the artwork, which was fantastic. If only the bloody spines of the books had been anywhere near as good. <laughs> so I'm holding in my hand now my first edition that I got, I think, Christmas oh, 1991. It's been eviscerated. And um, that happened by the 1st of January. Good God. Um, it was already falling to pieces. But, but it's opened on the one page that you would need the most, Diablery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, oh, it's bringing back some memories, actually, looking in here. Yeah, yeah. The artwork was patchy, but the full-page spreads were some fantastic stuff. Well, one of the things that were included in that grand total of 560-odd uh, titles that I mentioned were art book releases, huh. um, where they did do collections of the full-page pl- uh, full artworks that they produced as um, folders of, of let's say, art. Um, they definitely did one for Mage. That was Michael Kaluka. Tim Bradstreet did one for Vampire. They did one for Wraith. I can't remember if they did one for Werewolf or not, but they did definitely do those three that I remember because I've I've got copies of them. Mm. And also Vampire being written by Mark Ryan Hagen, you know, of Ars Magica fame. Well, that's where I knew him from anyway. A great games designer. The fact that Odd was really immersed in Ars Magica at the time and then you get Vampire and there's Tremere and some of the things from the, the medieval Ars Magica world. And, and some of that carried forward into Mage as well, didn't it? That was one of the crossover points, yes. Yeah, so that, that kind of helped sell it to me, I think. I think another thing that that was uh, certainly canny from a marketing point of view was the fact that I, I, I've used the phrase GM to describe you know, the, the game's master role in this. But they're not called GMs in the world of darkness, are they? They're storytellers. But so much so that the mechanics in this are actually referred to as the storyteller system. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seemed a big deal at the time. It did seem to be sort of saying, you know, this is a new way of role-playing. Yeah, and um, certainly having played a few World of Darkness games now, I'd take some issue with that. Uh, you know, there was this this idea that was sold that you were playing these this game of personal horror that it, you were playing people who had become something other than human who were trying to hold on to their humanity in the face of new perhaps animal instincts or hungers. Certainly, you know the the experiences I, I've had, and more importantly, you know what what I've I've heard from people who've played a hell of a lot more World of Darkness than I have is that. Certainly that may come up from time to time, but it doesn't seem to be the way most people actually play it. And I don't know whether that's down to the material or just down to people's misinterpretations of it. But it, yeah, it, it seems, there seems to be a huge disconnect between what the game promises and what actually happens when you sit down at the table to play it. There's definitely a transition that happens between the book and when it's run. And I know various players have different expectations as well, because this is something that I uh, came up across when I was running a lot of the LARP uh, games in the the UK, uh, going back six or seven years ago now. There's one very large camp of 
player mentality that says, we want this to be a supernatural soap opera, no storyteller's going to come near us with no plot, bugger off. They want to focus purely on their own interactions, wrap up in their own angst, and really tell, ramp up that feeling of personal horror. And and that yeah, you know, that to me is is what it was sold to me as. Yeah, that that's very much I'd say it as the underlying intention of the books. But then you add the meta plot onto it, and they say actually there's more than just you going on here. There's a much bigger story, a much bigger machinations happening with your clans, with your political affiliations. There is more than just you. But it's the expectation that these are then used as counterpoints or pressure points or whatever to your character's personal journey, or is your experience that they just completely subsume whatever personal story you were playing? When I've tended to run it, I focus more on the plot of what's happening around you. As far as I'm concerned, the personal stuff is stuff that happens um, happens to your character off-screen. Because that's stuff that happens every night. You don't need to go through that in every game session. You don't have to wake up and go, all right, cross off a blood point. What are you going to go out and feed again now? The same thing I did last night, Pinky. You do that so many times that suddenly it's like real world. I don't need to immerse myself in that during the game. I'm more interested about the interesting story that comes up of when basically the plot bus, as they referred to it in the camera society, comes along and runs your ass over. That it's then what happens in the wake of that. It strikes me that there's a difference here to be drawn between what that person who wrote the bit about storytelling and personal horror and the personal journey from humanity to monstrousness they were really into that but were most of the players a lot of the players were more interested in you know this overarching plot and the big story and and all that so they weren't necessarily drawn to to that so it wasn't necessarily a failing of the game it was just that you know the audience liked different aspects of the game perhaps yeah i mean certainly uh, you know the the phrase i've heard over and over again to describe vampire the masquerade is that you're playing superheroes with fangs (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah there certainly seems to be an element of that I'd agree with the super heroes, not so <laughs> <Yeah>. much. <laughs> yes, yes, you may have a point there. It's that aspect of it, you know, what you described as the plot bus, that for me would put me off more than anything else. That um, having been sold to me as this game of personal horror, if I weren't given a chance to explore that in the game, then I'd feel cheated. That That's not what I signed on for. That's what the book promised me. And, you know, if someone is saying, well, hang on, but there's all this big stuff happening in the world and that's what you should be concentrating on, it's okay, but, you know, you use that as a way of, of perhaps challenging me on, you know, yeah, seeing how far I'll go to, to gain power to try to, you know, save myself or keep that outside. But, you know, still fundamentally what's important to me is, is you know, playing, a, playing someone who is trying to hold on to their humanity. I have enough of that in the real world. I don't need to worry about exploring that in any game. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Matt, you talked about Metaplot in passing, mm-hmm. which is, again, something that I I don't think I'd encountered as a term before I heard people talking about it in terms of the world of darkness. So this is the idea that there's this overarching plot that's going on through the books, you know, these, these world-shaping events... That, that will impact your campaign and have this degree of continuity in it? I'd say could, not will. Okay. Yeah, because you could take as much of it or as little of it as you wanted and add it in. That It wasn't to say that if something had happened, let's say, in one book, it doesn't have to affect if you, um, you if you're playing in a completely different part of the world. How much use were these books if you weren't buying into the meta plot? Again, depends on which books you were buying, because yeah. it wasn't that this is a pure metaplot-only book that, that they released. Um, it was peppered throughout everything. So you right. got little hints here and there as to what was going on. Because as I recall, you know, looking at some of those books, they would start off with a big chunk of fiction, 
and often I, I was kind of frustrated by that. I'd kind of want to get onto the, the, I didn't really want to read a story. I wanted to get into the, the game book and the source material or, you know, whatever it was that mm-hmm. book was about. Yeah, that, that's a model they've kept on even with Chronicles of Darkness, mm. that they usually start with a fiction um, piece to help set the mood. Mm. One criticism I've heard of Metaplot, and you know, particularly the White Wolf Metaplot, I don't have any strong opinion on this because I've never read any of the stuff and I've never played games that have really involved it. But I, you know, I've heard the, the perception from some players that what you're getting through the Metaplot is basically the table scraps from you know the, the game designer's own games. And it's just sort of, you know, here, here's how our characters or you know, what we consider to be the, real, you know, the really important characters are, are shaping the world. You're not in a position to do any of this cool stuff. All you can do is sort of bask in its reflected glory. Do you think that there, there's any validity to that criticism? I'm, I'd be surprised if it was actually from one of the like developers' games they were running. Okay. I can see it's a story that the developers wanted to tell mm. and that it was the ripples of what was happening. Admittedly, yes, they are big characters in the setting that are doing their things. These are the elders that are moving around in the war between the Camarilla and the Sabat, using just the vampire example. They are making some decisions that will completely change the um, certain parts of the world, depending on where your game's set. Things like New York, for example, was a big war ground between the Sabat and the, uh, the Camarilla. Chicago was a big uh, city that they detailed in several books. It really depends on, again, if you have a game that wants to directly interact with that and is set in one of those key locations. If you wanted to, say, set a game that's set in Leicester, pulling a name of a town out of the air, you could ignore Metaplot. Because there's nothing okay. set there. It's purely how much you wanted to take from it. It's And also, if you had a character that's uh, worked their way up the ranks, by whatever means, whether you do it by Diablery, if you wanted to get to that uh, that kind of lofty power level, you could become a mover and shaker in your own right. Okay, it, It's just bloody hard, but you could do it. Because I, I guess, you know, when I was hearing these stories, the thing that, that it echoed with, uh, for me was the frustration I felt with, I mean, th- this is, you know, probably something that applies more to the games that I grew up with in the 1980s. But the idea that, you know, with licensed properties particularly, that, you know, you'd have, say, you know, for argument's sake, you know, Star Wars or something like that, mm-hmm. you'd have a game that's set in the same universe where you've got all these world-shaping events that you see in the, the films on, on the screen, where there are all these, you know, really kind of powerful or larger-than-life characters, you know, doing really, you know, important, impressive things. And it's sort of, right, okay, you're playing the third spear carrier from the left, you know. You, you're never going to start out as, as, as one of these characters who made you excited about the set in the first place. The way the game goes, you will probably never ever get to play something like that you're always going to be in the shadows and it i i don't know it felt a bit like a bit like that to me that mm. you know here's all the cool stuff that's going on now you know you look at this and then you know get, get on with your unimportant bits no I, I could see i could see how that would have a particular impression if you held it as that only those people could do what you're what you're aspiring to yeah using yeah. let's use star wars as continuing the analogy let's say i started off as some bumbling mechanic on tatooine who wants to try and have ambitions to become a Jedi. By the, uh, by the game system, I could, in theory, be- uh, become a Jedi class, I could do training, I could get up to sufficient skill, I earn enough experience, etc. I could become a badass Jedi, that, uh, Jedi that's probably better than um, Skywalker. And then I just go off and tell my story in a different part of the universe, um, galaxy, because it is a big, big galaxy. But, mm. but I guess it's the fact that 
you know, most games don't go on long enough for you to go through all that build-up. You know, if you go back to the idea of, say, Star Wars as an example, mm-hmm. you aren't forced to watch, you know, 15 films, mm-hmm. you know, beforehand where the characters all learn the skills to do stuff that's, in, you know, interesting on the screen when the action comes around. Well, same thing with the with the metaplot for a, uh, to a certain degree that you have certain characters where their their backstory is told in a relatively short period of time, but then it goes into um, quite in depth detail as to the events that they have done to help shape the metaplot. Like, for example, this is going not something you'd necessarily interact with so much in a modern day setting, but um, one of the big events in the vampire canon was called the Anarch Revolt which is basically where the underling vampires decided that their bosses were far, uh, far too oppressive. One of them rose up and um, effectively diablerized and killed off one of the most powerful vampires that there was. That vampire, um, Tyler, goes on to become a character in the modern day, because vampires being that they can live for centuries or potentially be immortal. She does pop up later in, in other books. Her background is very maybe told over a page, but that one big event sparked a whole history okay. after it. Sorry, just as an aside, you've you've each used the word diablerized an awful lot, and uh, yeah, um, you might just want to explain that for people who haven't played Vampire. It's a fun thing, yeah. Do it, do it in every game you uh, every game you play. <laughs> Regarded in Vampire, uh, in the Vampire culture, as being the worst crime that you can possibly commit, worse than murder. You are not only destroying a vampire, you are consuming their soul and gaining their essence and power. And climbing up the generations. Oh yes. <laughs> And now we talk about our experiences with World of Darkness. Well, I guess you're probably going to be doing most of the talking here, Matt, as you've got the most experience. Sure. What, what else is uh, new? But, <laughs> but, I, but, I mean, with that in mind, let's start off with Paul. I mean, you, you talk, I, I think out of the three of us, you're the only one who actually started playing the World of Darkness games when they first came out. Well, I guess so. I mean, we took myself and a friend Phil, played and ran Vampire um, pretty soon after it came out. And we did with what we did with Call of Cthulhu and, and other games, which was just sort of take it and set it in our hometowns, really. At the time, as I said, we were living in Sheffield. Well, I was living in Yorkshire. Phil was in Sheffield and set the game in Sheffield. Um, so we kind of had Sheffield by night rather than uh, <laughs> Chicago by night. And um, Same thing. Yeah, much the same. Much more glamorous. Too. And yeah, we kind of alluded to a, a Camarilla, but we didn't really make that much of it. It was more about our our own personal vampires doing their own thing on a, on a much smaller scale. Funnily enough, I do recall, even early on, and we weren't really into LARPing, but I remember Phil and I were playing vampires and we filled up a whiskey bottle with cold tea and we were kind of doing this thing of, of sort of playing this out in front of the other players, w- with the other players in a kind of stand-up version of it. So even before it, the, the whole LARPing thing for, for Vampire came out, it must have been sort of suggesting itself to us. One thing that did stick in my mind as, a, as an experience, we'd played these vampires, you know, we're very powerful, we can do all sorts of things. And then Phil had us going out to look for some, um, for some old vampires that were sort of buried under a hill and were in torpor. You know, that's when we were attacked by what we didn't really realise what they were, but obviously they're werewolves and they tore the shit out of us. And, they were, and in that moment, it, it really kind of hit us as sort of a moment of panic as players, you know, to be playing these powerful things and suddenly we were like powerless again. That was really quite a striking, uh, striking experience. Yeah. There's always a bigger fish. Yeah, yeah, that's, that was pretty cool. 
I didn't really start any of the World of Darkness stuff until the new World of Darkness came out. I thought, yeah, th- this this is a chance to actually get in on the ground floor, not have to read all this, you know, accumulated canon. Yeah, start something I can actually understand. Yeah, I played Vampire the Requiem. I played uh, Werewolf the Forsaken. Uh, I played uh, Mage the Awakening. I guess I didn't fall in love with them enough to play them, you know, over time. And what I found, though, was, again, this, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, a book a month coming out, that what felt like relatively simple games to begin with that I could keep on top of, suddenly, you know, it it felt like a job keeping up with with the new material that was coming out. And by the time that there were, you know, more than a dozen supplements that had come out, I lost interest in the game completely. So that actually put you off, I mean, actively. completely, yeah. I stopped playing and sold all my material, that was that. Okay. But I have played some of the old World of Darkness now. Our friend Ollie uh, ran Werewolf at the club. And, yeah, I really quite enjoyed that. Do you think uh, it was a different game? He he was very careful to sort of pare things down to the bare minimum that we needed. He created dossiers for us with, you know, the, the, the basics of the background and the character information that we needed. Mm. We didn't use many of the splat books. Uh, and so it all felt very manageable. It didn't feel spectacularly different to playing Werewolf the Forsaken. Mm. Um, I mean, the the mechanics were a bit different, um, not greatly so. Uh, The character creation was a bit different, fewer options. Um, I mean, there's no reason it should really feel like a different game particularly. But Um, no, 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 it it, it felt similar. Yeah. I'm surprised because actually I thought that the the two different iterations of Werewolf were probably the two mo- um, the two that divorced themselves the most from um, the games. You talked about what you found off-putting about Werewolf the Apocalypse being the whole eco-warrior aspect of mm-hmm. it, and yeah, I mean certainly that did come into it a little bit. There seemed to be you know a similar thread almost running through Werewolf the Forsaken that you were some sort of spiritual guardians. The the focus may have been slightly different, and you know maybe Ollie didn't play up the eco-warrior aspect quite as much, though it did come into it a bit. Yeah, fundamentally, it didn't feel that different. The, you know, sort of drifting in and out of realities, interacting with spirits, um, you know, perceiving the world through different eyes. And no, I mean, it, th- those aspects of it felt really quite familiar from when I played The Forsaken. Oh, there are definitely shared elements like that. I mean, the, the way I'd seen the two games kind of separated out is that you've got Apocalypse being very much a fight of werewolves trying to, uh, trying to save the Earth and trying to save Gaia. Whereas Forsaken, it's you're fighting, you're already effectively fighting a battle that's already been lost. Um, you're trying to stop spirits coming into the physical world, rather than fighting against uh, big overarching corporations, corruption of the world, and so on. But I guess that those make a big difference from the background and from the premise and mm-hmm. and the pretext for why you're doing it. In practice, in play, though the colour may be different between the two, what you're actually doing isn't that different. Mm. What about you, Matt? I mean, you've played a, a, a wide variety of these games, both in tabletop and in LARP. I mean, I'm interested to know, where was the most striking experience? Would you say the memorable experience were in the LARPs or more in the tabletop, or was it kind of a just a spread of both? Uh, it's going to be a somewhat skewed answer, but I'm going to say LARP, because I've done vastly more LARP than I have tabletop for what. That say my most memorable um, arc is going to be for Requiem, um, the new vampire one. 
One of the things that they decided to do from the outset of first edition is that they tried to give it as more of a sandbox feel, that it was a canvas that wasn't restricted so much by Metaplot that Masquerade had been. That they set up elements that you could throw in, the one I'm thinking of in particular, um, Seven. They were an antagonist that they never explained exactly what they were. They explained, this is what they turn up, this is what they do, this is what the evidence that gets left behind, the GM fills in the gaps, or the storyteller fills in the gaps. They did eventually release a seven book. <laughs> of course uh, they did. But, but even then, it presented, these are options of what seven could be. Mm-hmm. And then when they did Second Ed Requiem, they took one of those options of seven and made it something completely different and made it its own part of their growing setting. So again, seven is something that's very open to interpret as to it's what the storyteller, whatever they want it to be. When the game started in 2005, the big uh, worldwide Camarilla Chronicle that I was playing in, and it's hence flying all over the place for. That was how Seven was sold to me. This is a big mystery. So I immediately latched onto it with a character concept that says, I want to be the one that knows everything about these guys. I want to, I want to be the one that pulls the mask off and goes, this is what's underneath. So I, I developed this huge folder of contacts and people and reports from games all across the world, from Italy, from Belgium, from the UK, from Ireland, from Canada, from the US, saying every time that this group had appeared, or a group that were claiming to be this group, what had they done, why had they done it, and what evidence had been left behind, and was now, basically trying to piece the gaps together. That's an interesting point, though. I mean, is there enough coordination between the different groups and you know, the, uh, the central writers that all this stuff did actually form a coherent picture? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> uh, there was up until a point uh, because the, the one thing with the camera of the society is that there were change there, there were changes in office. It's like having a different director come on for a different season of a TV mm. production. If the free, if the new director didn't like what the old one was doing, they scrapped it. <laughs> so, you, and plus you had certain groups that were popping up and claiming to be seven that weren't really seven, and and so on. So there were false, there were red herrings false down trails, there. Right. And other countries eventually were running their own different versions of what it was as well, adding more complications into the mix. But there was generally the global office, which had a unified view to run uh, to run particular plots across countries. I'm just trying to get my head around what was going on there. So you were playing in Britain and in America, mm-hmm. and well you as Matt were um, saying that your character was finding about what was happening in other games being played in actual games being played in the real world in Belgium mm-hmm. and so on yeah. and so you would inquire about that and the, the GMs running those games would notify you of things that you might have found or, out or, 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 did you, or you did oh, get players. in contact with players in other countries yeah. Yeah. so yeah. this was going on outside of your games kind of in downtime if you like you were, con- oh, you were... Ga- game was pretty much 24-7 oh right um, okay that you had mailing lists you had groups hmm. that you would sign up to and people would post in characters say this is stuff that's happening in our local game so there was correspondence happening all the time. This this game never stopped. Oh, okay. Because I'm, you know, I'm not really. I've never really played in one of those games. So yeah, right. Okay. So I didn't know that. Yeah. So it was say flying. I think games I went to in the end. I went to Canada, the US, and the UK as well as uh, once I went to Ireland as well. So you were really immersed in it then, because you were playing it kind of all the time, really. Oh God, yeah. And I mean, yeah. this was before social media was such a big thing as well. So do you think that would be different now? I mean. Oh, it's, or I mean, it's just still, via email, I guess. But it's still going in different fashions. You still have you still have email lists. You still have uh, some extent. I think they have Facebook groups for certain things now. Sure. But I'm just nowhere. Well, I'm not involved in it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know exactly how it's panned out in the last five years or more. Let's wrap up this discussion with a look at what the world of darkness has become now. 
So, Matt, you've said mm-hmm. earlier on that there's now a couple of publishers putting out different iterations of the kind of world of darkness. Well, there will be two. Um, Paradox haven't put out anything as yet. Okay. Um, they're still in development of their, their own material. But even with Onyx Path, there's the 20th anniversary editions of the old books, and mm-hmm. then there's there's new ones. So there's different versions of it I can yep. go and buy. There's 20th anniversary of Classic uh, classic World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness, which is the, the new versions of the new World of Darkness material. And how have things developed now? If I go as a, as a new player, I go to the game shop or online and buy some of the new books, how does it compare with the stuff that we've kind of talked about? It's very different. I would say it's more designed for a LARP environment. This is definitely a comment that was made when Geist came out originally, that various uh, various friends of mine, they were very active in the, um, in the LARP circle at the time. That what came out? Oh, Geist is one of the limited run games that they produced. Um, Geist, the Sin Eaters. Okay. Um, it was, I think it only really had one core book and then one supplement book that really even wasn't marketed as a Geist book. It was made more available to, um, as part of the World of Darkness generic line. It was called the Book of the Dead. It basically explored the underworld. So the different um, the different realms of the lands, the lands of the dead going down to the very edge of creation. So, so is this like uh, to the New World of Darkness, what... Um, it's what, a revisioning like of Wraith. Uh, Wraith, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah it's kind of like that. But it's very fo- it's focused in the land of the living more so than the land of the dead. Right. Um, you're effectively playing a person that has died and then come back rather than died and is stuck in the un- is stuck in the underworld like gotcha. wraith is. If anything, you could almost say it's risen, um, which is the term for wraiths that do that that come back. It's very it's more closer a parallel to that than playing ghosts. It's ghosts the role playing game. Yeah, kind of. But <laughs> the. A lot of people, when they read the setting for that, went, this is designed as a LARP rather than, rather than as a tabletop. Oh, okay. That it, it had very little in terms of drive for what characters could do. It was very much designed as, here's a setting, your storyteller is then going to throw any input um, at you. It's not inherently built into the books themselves. So it was very much more of a template that we would have we would seen used in a LARP rather than as a tabletop. Tabletop had a lot more elements for you to bounce off um, that were inherently built in there, and a lot more, almost like fronts if you use the apocalypse world uh, hmm. term there. That it was a lot more open and okay. a lot less lot less constrained. I mean, is that the same with Mage? I mean, that, this is the only one that I've played of the recent versions. Just just had one session with you playing Mage. Mm-hmm. And you, you also played Mage second edition as well. Oh, well, yeah, oh actually, actually, yeah. I mean, before you get into answering that question, let's just define that. The fact that New World of Darkness, you know, as it's become Chronicles of Darkness, uh, you know, has, has, what, hit these these 2.0 editions with mm-hmm. new mechanics or you know, uh, revised mechanics and revised settings. That is a pretty seismic shift in terms of complexity as well. You were saying earlier how it was quite nice that you had dots on the sheet. Mm. You could just add up that number of dots, gather that dice, That's pull no, and roll not it. not true anymore. Hell no. <laughs> the, the complexity of the mage mechanics did seem quite yeah, o- overwhelming. over the top. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's... That, that's quite saddening in a way because, as we talked about you know earlier... That was really one of the selling points of the World of Darkness games, the fact that they were low barrier to entry, the fact that, you know, from what you've said, I, I played the, yeah, I played uh, New World of Darkness Mage, but not the 2.0 edition, not mm-hmm. the revised edition. Mm-hmm. And from what you're saying, I, the, the, the mechanics there sound crunchy as hell. They are very, very, very crunchy. They make sense 
the thing I'll say in their defence is that yes, they when you look at the whole mechanics and you think, yeah, that, that makes sense, it all fits in with how they're trying to explain how magic works. And the key problem it has is because they've tried to address the problem they had with original Mage, uh, Mage the Ascension, that you had a whole lot of different game mechanics that were set in the same world, but some of them were vastly overpowered compared to other games. Like right. Mage was incredibly overpowered compared to something like Vampire or Werewolf. You had different starting level. They did a comparison, I think, um, kind of informally in the fan circuit that said a starting were- a starting werewolf could tear the shreds out of a starting mage or starting vampire, but an advanced mage could rewrite reality and destroy anything. I mean, is that a problem? It's because they've tried to balance the game mechanics to make it right. uniform that everything works the same way. Yeah. That they've incorporated terms, um, conditions, tilts, etc. These these are all codified effects that you can use across almost any of the games, but it just adds a level of complexity in that uniform uniformity. I mean, I can buy that all men are created equal, but you know, all <laughs> supernatural beings are created equal. Do we really need to say that? No, it, again, because they wanted it was the main issue that a lot of the fans had was that it was balanced. That there was just mage was far too mo- um, powerful compared to some of the things that it, I would also agree, uh, argue that, in to some extent, Promethean is a hell of a lot more powerful than some other races. Promethean is sort of the the, the Frankenstein's monster type thing, or the golem, or whatever. They, yeah. You're playing a, a, a construct. Both, yeah. Um, it's probably the most divorced from humanity of the mm. games that were released for Chronicles of Darkness. That. One of those could walk into a town and suddenly make a volcano. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, there's vast levels of power difference here. But I mean, is it ever going to be like a game like Monster Hearts, where one player is playing a werewolf, one player is playing a vampire, one player is playing Frankenstein's monster? You know, are they ever all going to get together in the same game at sort of starting level? You they could, are? you could in theory, because um, in theory, but the, well, World of Darkness Chicago for the new WOD line when it was made was actually mm. designed as a crossover book. Okay, so um, you had mages, vampires, and werewolves all working together. Hey, have you ever actually played a game where that's been the case? I've played a couple of tabletops where they've tried to do it, but they've never lasted more than one or two sessions. So, so what is it that made them go wrong? It was partly the player character group um, group that disintegrated, mainly because all of us that tried to do it were all too much invested in the LARPs at the time, and the LARPs ate too much time. Ah, okay. It wasn't a fault of the premise, right? Um, because you part of it was to establishing a setting and a premise why they would all be together and working together in the first place. This is part, again, when I think an vast improvement on Chronicles of Darkness compared to the original classic World of Darkness... Werewolf would not fucking work with anything. It would it would go your worm tainted, your weaver tainted, and just shred everything without any um, without mm. any compromise. Which I thought, well, that's a great cohesive thing to have in a game if you're trying to um, trying to do a World of Darkness game. Whereas you can do that in Chronicles of Darkness. Hmm. Before we wrap this this little bit up, I, I wanted to sort of double back to something I was saying earlier about you know the problems I'd had getting into the World of Darkness in the first place. In its current iteration, either as Chronicles of Darkness or these these V20 or 20th anniversary editions, mm-hmm. is there still the same kind of barrier to entry? Or is there still this this huge amount of accumulated canon? Have they wiped the slate clean at any stage? Or are you still expected to sit down and do a degree-level <laughs> course to understand the whole thing? I think this, is actually, this was a comment that uh, Matt Dawkins, a friend otherwise known as the Gentleman Gamer, yes, uh, yeah. He's the, I think he's the line developer now for V20 over at Onyx Path. He held a panel at Dragon Meet last year where there was definitely a shift in perception from the US versus the UK that the UK wanted smaller books. 
specifically for that reason, <laughs> so that there wasn't a vast amount of material that they had to wade through, that it was the books were seen as a barrier to entry. Whereas in the US, they wanted everything in one place, and they wanted it all with, we want all the material, all accessible, one, one central point of reference, which is why you have Mage 20th Anniversary is the size of a breeze block. The book is about three inches thick. Does that include everything you need to play Mage? Oh, everything you need to play Mage, as far as I'm concerned, would probably be about a third of that book. Okay. You, you don't need to have all of the setting material. You don't need to have all of the fluff. But I guess as a, a GM or a storyteller, whatever you want to say, that I'd feel somewhat intimidated coming in, running something like this, because I don't have that, you know, 20, 25 years of knowledge. And I'd always feel like, you know, I'd be sitting down with a bunch of players who would rip my paltry knowledge of it to shreds. Yeah, I, I think, honestly, it is a problem, because there is too much. What you ideally want to do to sit down with is play with a group of players that do not know the setting. Right. Um, at that point, you slowly reveal bits of it as either you as the GM become aware of it, or whatever you want to make up that you then reveal to the players. As long as you know how the mechanics work, how the rough power structure works, and the bare basics of, if you, again, going back to Vampire's example, these are the clans, these are what they do, these are the different political uh, political factions, this is a rough idea of what they're fighting over and the background that's led to their creation. The rest of it, go knock yourself out. But there is a hell... If you want to stick by... 100% canon, like a lot of the um, lot of the fan base wants, you're going to have a hell of a job trying to keep up with everything because there is a vast amount of info out there. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is that time in the episode once again when we thank those generous people who have given us money via Patreon. The money you send us pays for all our operating costs, allows us to invest occasionally in new equipment, and generally keeps the podcast on the air. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And we have a few new backers to thank this time. We do. A big thanks to Andrew Stubbing. Indeed. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yes, thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you very much to Miko Araxanen. We hope you're pronouncing your... We, we He's hope, probably, he probably is pronouncing it right. It's probably us. That <laughs> yeah. we, we, we hope we're pronouncing your name right, Miko. Apologies if we're not. Yeah, thank you very much, Miko. Indeed. Thanks, Miko. And over on social media, we've had some feedback on previous episodes and the like. Yes, particularly on the, the couple of episodes we just put out on investigative games. Uh, yes, we've had a lot of good feedback and advice from a number of people, really. It's worth checking out particularly the Google Plus community there. Uh, if this is a topic that interests you there and, and on, on blasphemoustomes.com, we've had a number of responses on this topic, which, if you've got any interest in running uh, investigative games, will probably give you lots of useful tips and tricks. In particular, Frank Delventhal and Scott McClure posted a bunch of stuff on uh, Google+, which, yeah, I, I think is, you know, there's some fantastic tips about how to manage note-taking, how to manage uh, physical representations of information at the table. And a uh, good friend of the, the good friends, Neil Smith from the Milton Keynes Role-Playing Games Club, we referred to something he'd said in the previous episode, and uh, he's responded thusly over on blasphemoustomes.com. Like you, I don't think I've seen many, if any, 
games that have ground to a halt because the players have missed a vital clue. There are plenty of ways to get clues into the players' hands. I've seen games grind to a halt because of excessive planning and deliberation. Are we in the cave or are we out the cave? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Where the players have lots of leads they could follow up on and don't know which one to work on first. I've also seen games slow down when there's lots of legwork to do. These are cases where there are a lot of things to follow up and everyone knows that most of them will lead nowhere. Yeah, that's a lot of fun really, isn't it? <laughs> but the players don't know which one will lead to the next vital clue. And either they have no enthusiasm for any of them, or they wait for the GM to suggest which would be interesting. Yeah, and I think that's that's a very good point, and that's much more of a problem that I've seen in RPGs in general. Uh, that I mean, it's not limited, I think, exclusively to investigative games. No, it's quite common in adventure yeah. games, I think. Yeah, 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 particularly where you've got some bit of action, uh, you know, an infiltration or a, you know some kind of action scene that the players are, or a battle even, that the players are planning. Uh, I have seen groups sit there for two, three hours going through every possible eventuality. The frustrating thing is, you know, both as a player and as a GM, none of that stuff is ever actually going to happen. Yeah, as, uh, it as, is massively uh, frustrating. Yeah. yeah, as soon as the dice hit the table or you know the unexpected happens during that, all those plans are going to go out the window. I'm a big fan of just skipping all that stuff you know, as much as possible. Neil also offers some really useful tips on how to handle uh, the problems that he identifies. So go over to BlasphemousTomes.com and take a look at the comments on the last couple of episodes and you'll find some gold there. Um, and what's this from Tim Vert on the Google Plus community? <laughs> mm, yes. <laughs> so I was recently reading a real, actual magical tome the long lost friend edited by friend of cthulhu dan harms this is a book of rituals published in america in 1820 imagine my delight to discover several entries on how to what attract fish (laughs) there can now be no doubt about the legitimacy of this spell i I don't think there's ever been any doubt about the legitimacy of it it's the the wisdom of it i mean yeah there's no wisdom in it (laughs) (laughs) this is not a spell one wants to cast lightly especially not in your bathtub at home then it would get real messy (laughs) <laughs> yeah, oh gosh, yeah. Yes, especially, you know, if you end up attracting a candrew. <laughs> well, I think we need to work on the new edition of this, uh, This what's it called? The Long Lost, Long Lost Friend? Yeah, it obviously hasn't been lost for quite long enough for you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on, on the Google Plus community, Tim has actually posted a, a picture of, of one has of the he? pages there, which... Contains... Well, it doesn't include that spell. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> so if you want to learn how to cast Attract Fish, just go across and, and take a look at that picture. And this is real actual magic, as yep. uh, Tim says. It is, right. yeah. So, Except <laughs> no inferior... I... This is just the kind of thing Jack Chick was trying to warn us about, isn't it? <laughs> no, Blackleaf, no. <laughs> you summoned a shark. <laughs> and we have a new iTunes review. Hooray! Yeah. I, I almost missed this one, so thank you. Uh, th- this is from Jörg Steiner, a uh, long-time listener of the show. He uh, happily pointed it out to us on, on uh, Twitter because... 
iTunes is weird in that you only see the reviews for your geographical area. Um, because Jörg's in Austria. Um, I think he's the first person in Austria to actually review the show, so it's, it's the only one there. We have a nice little tool on uh, the Blasphemous Tomes website which actually aggregates the iTunes reviews from around the world. But it doesn't seem to be quite as comprehensive as I thought it was, in that yeah, it doesn't include Austria. So I, I don't know if I can go into the code of this plugin and fix it. Well, maybe it. so, because it is quite a job going through all of the geographical locations yeah. through iTunes to actually look at all the different ones. So if we could fix that, that'd be... If somebody knows how to do this, then please tell us. Yeah, and, and similarly, if you are in uh, one of the non-Anglophone countries and you've left us a review and, and we haven't commented on it, please let us know because it's quite possible that iTunes has just hidden it from us. Hey, Jörg writes, Cthulhu is pleased! This is a good start. <laughs> this podcast is a must for every fan of horror movies, horror games, and especially Call of Cthulhu role-playing games. Each episode is full of interesting topics with examples and helpful ideas for your games, as the hosts are veterans of the genre and authors of many publications on those topics. And if you're a very good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, your name will become part of legendary singing, or at least sound-making on the parts of the hosts. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> Is this legendary in the way that your old, absolutely horrific bits of folklore are legendary? I, I was yeah. just thinking of that line from, I think it's from um, Hellbound, the Hellraiser 2. Yeah. <laughs> your suffering will be legendary, even in hell. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh. friends, no singing this episode. Woohoo! Yay! Yeah, that, gosh. So your, your ears are spared for a fortnight. Yeah. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Cthulhu is pleased. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you very much for the review, Jörg. And uh, if any of the rest of you uh, are moved to write a review and put it on iTunes, we would be extremely grateful. Apparently, the iTunes algorithm relies an awful lot on things like reviews for how it ranks you in iTunes and how visible your podcast is. If you do have the time and the motivation to leave us one, that would help raise the visibility of the podcast no end. And if you wish to get in touch with us, then you can do so on BlasphemousTomes.com, where you'll find links to our social media on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter. And we have a contact page on the website. And finally, as we leave the world of darkness, what are our final thoughts? Yeah, this has been a really interesting discussion. You, certainly, Matt, I mean, you've clarified a lot of things for me and, um, you know, it certainly challenged a lot of my assumptions about, you know, things that I thought were flawed about the world of darkness. So it's perhaps changed my opinion somewhat. I still don't see myself really going back and engaging with it in a big way because... I find the whole thing overwhelming. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a young man anymore. Wait, You're too old for White Wolf, Scott. I, I, Is that I what am. you're saying? Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's a serious point. That when I was younger, you know, reading games with lots of background or lots of, you know, lo lo lots of um, mechanics wasn't really a barrier. I could sit down, read a 300-page rule book you know, in one sitting, absorb most of that information, remember it, and, you know, it was fine. Well, I don't think I could ever do that, but... <laughs> okay. But nowadays, my capacity to absorb and remember new information is not what it once was a canon heavy game like this uh you know and and what you said has become a mechanically heavy game like a number of other you know really canon rich games that are out there at the moment i you know i just look at it and i think no i'll, I'll just never have time to engage with all that
it's also not a game or series of games that really lend themselves to short one-shot mm. play. That these are long spanning games. Like to give you an idea with the the LARPs I was involved with, they were ten year chronicles. And mm. we even then felt that some of them had been cut short before their time. These are games that you have to play for years on end. And I guess actually that's part of their appeal then, that you know, you are getting this long term buy in. You're engaging with something as a long commitment. And, you know, as, as a publisher, I guess that's a really good thing as well, because it means that you're creating a dedicated and probably quite exclusive fan base who will you know, buy your products and not anyone else's. I can see myself playing the kind of White Wolf type ideas. But I don't know that I'd go back to White Wolf for the game system. You know, I, I kind of like the idea of playing monsters, but that idea has been taken out into other games now. And I'd probably lean towards some other types of games. We don't tend to sort of take on 10-year campaigns. I mean, you know, think twice about my green bananas. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think you know, more favoured towards one-shots and short short yeah. sessions and i don't really see white wolf lending itself so much to that no i mean it's interesting what you're saying about playing the monsters and me immediately my mind went to monster hearts there, yeah where you're talking about a book that's you know 100 pages long if that you know less than that that's not exactly dense text but most of that is character sheets and where you probably play over the course of you know four to eight weeks in terms of commitment and you know absorption that's pretty much the polar opposite what about you matt You've spent a long time in White Wolf, not so much recently. Do you see yourself going back to it? It's having the time. Because, uh, like you said, it's years of investment to do a... I, I hesitate to word, uh, use the word proper, but to no, but do to, to, a, to do it justif- ju- yeah, justice. Yeah, that's, that's better, yeah. Well, I, well, I remember I, you, you, you used to run a lot of LARPs. Oh, God, yes. And, yeah, I remember you talking about the amount of work you were putting into that. It, I mean, it seemed like a full-time job. You had binders mm. full of information, all sorts of tracking details. Um, you were putting in, you know, days and days and days of work preparing for them, writing all this stuff, going through downtime reports, through character cre- yeah, through characters, creating NPCs. I genuinely cannot imagine putting in that much effort into a game. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a hell of a lot of stress at times, and as I say, it had its pluses. It had its um, it has its minuses, but overall, it was. I wouldn't have done it if I didn't like doing it. Hmm. Um, it's a setting that is wonderfully intricate, wonderfully diverse. You can tell tell so many stories in it. There's always something that I find inspiration to think, oh, that would make a good uh, good little story um, here and there. And stuff that I really like to enjoy running at the table, and that I've been playing or running it in one form or another for the last seventeen years. So yeah, I mean, it still still keeps going, but it's but primarily it's finding the time because it is such a long-spanning game that I just find it easier now that I'm more geared towards doing one shots or the occasional eight-week-long campaign than I am doing anything of a longer stretch, just because life changes and other stuff gets in the way. Okay, well, let's leave it there. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com mm-hmm.